Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. This week, we are joined by the co-editor-in-chief of the Canadian Journal of Surgery, Dr. Ed Harvey. Dr. Harvey is an orthopedic surgeon at McGill University. In this episode, we explore what it really takes to run a scientific journal, as well as the changing landscape of publishing with the rise of predatory journals. Finally, we get Dr. Harvey's thoughts on the challenges of evidence-based medicine in surgery. Dr. Harvey, thank you so much for joining us on Cold Steel. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and your training pathway for those of us who don't know you as well? Sure. I'm actually originally from a suburb of Ottawa called Nepean. Uh, from a fairly large family, four kids, but uh, no one else in health, not in the direct family or even the extended family. Um, I went off to uh, Western University when I got old enough uh, to uh, study biophysics, and it was a fairly small program. We had a lot of hands-on research, and that's really where I got interested in doing research, so kind of carried through life. Then I came on to McGill University to do medical school, and I haven't left because my wife wouldn't let me. So I married uh, another physician, uh, she was a year behind me uh, at McGill, and we uh, kind of set up shop here. I was pretty uh, happy being here. It was a time when no one wanted to be here, but I was happy we stayed. Um, I've actually done three fellowships over the years, a master's degree, and uh, I'm now a professor at McGill University, and uh, one of my part-time gigs is uh, helping the Canadian Journal of Surgery and helping Chad Ball. Uh, congratulations on, one of, uh, on a fantastic career. Um, you know, one of the obvious big areas of your life is research and innovation. Is that something that you were always interested in, or is that something that sort of evolved over time? Yeah, good question. I really um, didn't know what research was. I had no idea what university was until I got to Western and did biophysics. And biophysics is a lot of hand-on research and hands-on and uh, Actually, some of the projects we did when I was in biophysics, uh, what we did in orthopedics, we broke bones, we saw how things wore out. I worked on a sensor. So all things that I've now uh, come full circle and I'm doing uh, with my career now. I, but before university, I had no idea what research was. My father told me I used to take everything in the house apart, never got it back together. So maybe I was researching things all my life, but uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's applicable. You know, as you mentioned, you're the editor-in-chief at the Canadian Journal of Surgery. How did that role evolve? Um, and, and tell us about some of the sort of the brightest moments and biggest challenges in that role. Yeah, sure. Um, Canadian Journal of Surgery I've been aligned with for a long time now. Um, Joe Meekins was editor-in-chief when I was a resident. Uh, when I became staff, he asked me to come on 
to do one of the case report sections of the journal, and I was on the panel for a number of years. And uh, when uh, Joe Meekins and Jim Waddell were both uh, timing out from the journal, they actually asked me to send them their CV. I thought it was to become an associate editor, and then all of a sudden they asked me to become editor-in-chief, and I have no idea why. Uh, I, didn't, I don't think I was any better than anyone else on the panel, but I just, uh, I guess I, I hit my deadlines better than they did. And it's always been a big priority to me to hit deadlines. I don't do a great job at it, but I try. But uh, for brightest moments and biggest challenges at the editor, as the editor-in-chief or on the journal, are there several challenges we've met over the years? I think uh, if you go back and look, there's a, there's a paper published in the journal about the former editors. And if you look at the common thread through that uh, paper, uh, everyone says they had trouble getting money to run the journal. And I don't think that's changed. Uh, we're still in kind of a uh, dubious position uh, economically every year. There's a discussion at the, at the journal, uh, should we keep doing this journal? And I think it's important we keep doing it. But it's become a little easier now that we're, we've, we've gone online and we've come out of print. It's a little cheaper, not much, but a little cheaper. I think that one of the biggest challenges also is that uh, this journal is just represented by people from all across Canada. So all the reviewers, all the associate editors and the editors are across Canada. And the journal doesn't have a lot of money. We can't have meetings in person every year or every six months like some journals do. And we've been virtual since before there was an internet. So it, it, we used to by phone call and then uh, email became uh, like the rigor, but uh, now it's easier, you know, we can get in touch with each other just like we are today. A little, it just makes it a little easier. I think the best part of the being editor in journal is that as you get to read a lot. So those are the major uh, points, I think, uh, as being editor-in-chief. I don't need to check to add some, but those are my challenges and biggest moments. Just being, I'm just honored to be trusted to do this, actually. It's a 63-year-old journal now. It's a journal with the longest publication history of all the journals published in Canada over, over the last 300 years. So I think we've got this uh, legacy to keep it going, and I, I take that uh, seriously. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Ed. For sure, it's a it's an absolute privilege to be sort of the, the last man in the door, thanks to you and Vivian. I'll always uh, always be appreciative of that. It's it, it's interesting. It it feels like I'm not sure you and I have talked directly about this, but it feels like the 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 media world in the in the context of academic surgery is changing rapidly right now. Whether that's surgical journals, obviously that we care about, or medical journals. Um, what do you think the future is for some of these journals, whether it's Annals or Canadian Journal of Surgery or Bone and Joint or, or, or whatever? Where, where do you think we're going? Sure. Uh, great question. I mean, uh, it's hard for people to get a good overview of the journals because uh, of what's going on in publication because there's a lot of driving factors. There's obviously driving factors from our side that we see academia, you know, publisher, parish, not so much in Canada, but still exists. Uh, the fact that you want to get your message out, have good patient care. But then there's also the top-down pressure, you know, the economics of running a journal. And I think if you step back and look at why the journal is actually here, there's those two real dichotomous re uh, reasons. And I think Chad and I are, are on, the, on the academic side and trying to drive patient care, but it's always a fight to get it done, you know, economically. I think 
Uh, you know, Vivian McAllister was really important in this journal. He he'd stepped off just before Chad, but uh, uh, him, he and I wrote a uh, article in the journal actually at the 60th anniversary about the history of publications in Canada. And uh, if anyone wants to look it up, it's a, it's a great read, and not because I wrote it, it's because Vivian wrote it. And uh, but it, it sort of gives you an overview of the history of the journal publication in Canada and how it's tied to actually medical care in Canada. And the publications have actually resulted in the Canadian Medical Association, the Royal College, and other uh, long-standing institutions being uh, started in Canada. So the people that publish journals and the people that publish in the journals have been a driving force in actually uh, medical care in Canada through not just the way they publish, but how, the institutions they founded. So I think it's you know, you say, oh, it's a journal, you know, it's just a journal, but I think it, it really speaks to where we've driven medical care in Canada. Uh, so I know now we're, now we're at this point with Canadian Journal Surgery, we're 63 years in. Um, the journal was founded in 1957. It was kind of a collaboration between Canadian Departments of Surgery, uh, the Royal College of Physicians and the Canadian Medical Association. And uh, the founding editor board was actually uh, 12 chairs of surgery from across Canada. So all the academic centers actually participated. And that's where the president was uh, of the journal and the editor-in-chief was uh, the president of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons at that time, which is Robert James out of Toronto. And, and it's kind of continued that tradition of being cross-Canada effort, which uh, is important. So the, I think Chad's question is more like, where is the journal and, and what's the overview of what the journal means in publications? So I've just gave you that little bit of history of how this journal has changed medical care in Canada. But now let's, we can, I can talk about a little bit about how it interacts with the rest of the uh, kind of uh, uh, big, broad rainbow of uh, publications across the world. You know, it, it's not, it's, it seems to be like a little journal in Canada, but it's not. I mean, the journal itself now actually has risen on the impact factor high enough that the H index is 55. And that might not mean anything to anyone, but the Journal of Surgery, which is one of the, which is seen as a very good journal to publish in, has the same age factor. So the Canadian Journal of Surgery is in the top 10 list of surgical journals, which uh, people like Vivian McAllister and Chad Ball have been very instrumental in having it happen. I mean, I think we're a little bit the Rodney Dangerfield of surgery. That's very Canadian. We don't get much respect, but we actually have an impact. So we've had, we have an impact on the process of medical care, on how we publish, and uh, what, what happens in the future. Now, what happens in the future is a huge question. Um, journals have become consolidated, just like companies are. Um, the actual types of publications that we're into, I mean, there's more than 2,000 journal publishers globally, and there's actually 30,000 active scholarly peer-reviewed journals being published. Biomedicine is about 30% of that total, so we're in a big field. We're, we're seen as in a big competition. But the top 10 publishers publish like one-third of the journals. So there's this kind of amalgamation and consolidation of journals that we might be, have to fight in the future going forward. Uh, people are going to try and buy us out because we're seeing maybe a desirable uh, kind of topic now because we're in the top 10. And uh, that, that will be one of our challenges going forward. That, that's so well said, Ed. Um, you know, I think we'd probably be remiss if we didn't 
take a moment in particular to thank the surgical chairs across the country that still continue to support us from almost every university. Um, they really are the lifeblood, not only as you point out in the origin story, but, but currently as well. well. One of the things that I always thought was really great when I was publishing as a resident and even before that as a medical student, to be honest, was the, the open access nature of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. And I'm sure there was, there was you know, journals that preceded that. But to be honest, in my little world coming up, I, I didn't know of any. And it's, it's been amazing personally and maybe selfishly to get feedback from sort of as you're insinuating all around the world, you know, head over to Australia and hit three cities and give three talks and trainees come up to you and say, oh, I read your paper on this, this, and this. And it's, it's a little bit striking. So I, I was curious, do you have any sense of, of how that initially evolved and who was the driver to, to do that? Cause it certainly seems to have, um, you know, like, like you said, you know, allow us to punch over our weight class. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, that happened under Vivian and myself. I must say Vivian was the driving factor. I was the devil's advocate. So he said, we should go open access. And I said, oh my God, we can't go open access. And so we talked about it over and over again. And finally, I think he convinced me that we have to. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's different um, business models for publications of journals, right? But we were sitting at a very low impact factor back in 2011. Uh, what we needed, there's many ways to increase your impact factor. Uh, the reason we were trying to increase the impact factor was because we didn't have any advertisements and people were not supporting it and therefore we were not going to have a journal. It, was, it goes back to that 60-year-old uh, dilemma of not having money to publish this journal. So uh, we, Vivian and I and the, and the publishers discussed different models and how to come about and, and get more eyeballs on the journal. And obviously full open access is one way. And Vivian was instrumental in not just the argument but also in putting it online so he had uh, the University of Western Ontario archives put the, every journal article online and, and they're all there right back to the first volume. And uh, it helps, you know, I, I mean, everyone's aware of how journals are published, at least they think, you know, there's everyone's kind of complacent with the conventional firewalled uh, journal where you have to get paid, paid to read it or be a subscriber. And if, you, if you're not, you have to pay $20 to look at the article or maybe your university supplies it for you, but there's payment going on there. And we had considered delayed open access, which means you just delay for a while and then you still have a firewall, but not for long. And we're full open access is what we went on to. And there's even models like self-archiving. You just publish and nobody cares what you publish. You just put it up, which is another big challenge in publishing is the predatory journals, which seem to be very mm. self-archiving. Mm -hmm. I, th I think as looking at going forward, the predatory journals are, are the biggest problem right now for most pu publishers. And that, those are journals that uh, publish anything with no review and, uh, or have a model where if you send paper for publication, they'll delay it for three or four years and say, well, you have to pay more money to get it published earlier to, some other kind of unethical practice around their uh, publication policies. And so uh, I think in response to that, there's been a few worldwide organizations. The big one is COPE, which is a, a, a group which has set, set out an ethics uh, policy on publications. It's a committee on publication ethics. I think all the surgical journal editors groups, about 120 journals belong to COPE and adhere to the principles of COPE. And actually it's open to anyone you can go and look and it has great algorithms for how to resolve uh, paper publication issues, pub, uh, you know, author issues, 
when you're having problems with publishers, et cetera. So it's been a, it's a, been a great resource. But even with resources like COPE or the World Association of Medical Editors and others, it's still really hard to, re to recognize what's a predatory journal in some cases. Um, there's been a bunch of, there was a, a famous academician named Beale who put up a list of fake journals and publishers, but was forced to withdraw it from lawsuits from one of the open publisher groups. Other people have the list online and there are other lists like Cabell's list of good and bad journals and the directory of open access journals is also another one that allow us to kind of separate out that predatory group. But I think it's gonna be a big challenge going forward. And it's, it's totally driven by the fact that the profit margin from the big publication groups is huge. Like the, the big five have a profit margin of 35% on, on the author's backs mainly. Uh, it's definitely not what we have at the CMAJ or this Canadian Journal of Surgery. But because of that large profit margin, there's been entrance into the market of all these uh, predatory publishers. Yeah, no, there's no doubt it's, it's uh, almost an overwhelming problem and technology is you know, certainly playing a part in that as well. Um, you, you've mentioned the, the impact factor of a journal uh, a couple of times, and certainly you and I understand that, uh, I hope, uh, quite deeply. But for the listeners who maybe don't understand that concept exactly, can you, can you sort of outline it and, and what it means to a journal or what it doesn't? And then maybe just chat about why removing, for example, case reports from the Canadian Journal and trying to minimize maybe qualitative surveys that aren't referenced enough or, or, or too much in comparison matter. Sure, that's, that's great. That's a great question. There's several impact factors that people use to judge journals. And basically, it, it is what it says. It's an impact factor. How much impact is this journal or publication or person having on the community at large? And the most commonly uh, quoted GIF or impact factor is actually a private company-owned rating system. And it rates... Uh, so it's very hard to get a hold of. You can't get a hold of it. You have to pay for the current year, but you can get a hold of it when it's two years older uh, online. But that impact factor that the, when people say impact factor is uh, a numerator and denominator function. So uh, it depends on how many papers are published in your journal and how many times you get quoted. So a journal uh, that has a lot of quotations will have a, an impact factor of 70, like the New England Journal of Medicine. And someone who has very few quotations has an impact factor of zero. And actually the impact factor of most medical, the average impact factor in medical journals is around one. And that's much higher than other specialties. So if you're over one, you're, you're doing well. And if you're below one, you might be doing well. You might just have a super specialized uh, kind of clientele. In mathematical journal, a good mathematical journal has an impact factor of 0.2 because people just read their, read their own theory and don't quote it, I guess. But uh, in medicine, we're looking for something over one. And so we, you know, when we started uh, in 2011, the impact factor was 0.6, I think, in the Canadian Journal of Surgery. And we've actually got it up to, at times, 2.5. And it's hovering around two. So I think it's, it's a, a good place to be especially for a journal that publishes very Canadian-centric papers. We publish protocol papers from Canada, which are not getting uh, referenced by many more people than Canadians, but we still have managed to keep that impact factor high without any bias, without forcing people to quote us or forcing people to read our journal. I think part of that was Vivian's move to have the Royal College uh, 
distribute the uh, journal and that a lot more eyes got on the journal and more people were quoting it. But it's also a factor that we have good, we have good science. Canadians do good science. Was that the good, good enough for the impact factor description for your chat or? Perfect. Did, did Thank go into you. the H index or any, there's, yeah. there's almost 24 that are used to describe journals. But I think the one when everyone says impact factor, that's the one they're talking about. Dr. Harvey, one of the things I've really enjoyed about uh, you being the co-editor-in-chief or the, the editor-in-chief is your editorials. Um, they, they have, they've been remarkably frank and you, you've never shied away from tackling some, some big issues. I mean, some of my favorites are like the one where you talk about uh, the way Trudeau is sort of um, holding on to transfer payments or about the, the fact that, you know, surgical innovation seems to uh, happen, but never seems to find its way to the operating room. And, and there, and I, I'm just quoting too, you have many and you've, you've written tons of editorials and they're, they're all excellent. How do you sort of think about the editorial itself? And do you have any advice for maybe some budding editors in chief? I, I know there's a few new editors, for example, like the, the Canadian Journal of Urology just got a new editor in chief and, uh, you know, he wrote a, a, his first editorial the other day. So do you have any advice for, um, for people writing editorials and how do you think about that uh, particular piece within the journal? Yeah, sure. Great question. I mean, um, I think it's the only time when it can really have a timely publication uh, in that, and that people might read. So you can sit on your soapbox at your own center and say, I hate this or I hate that. And we should do this or that, but this allow, this is one time when I think I can actually get out to a larger uh, readership. And, and I, try to seize on a uh, timely publication of current events as they apply to medicine. So transfer payments for health has always been a kind of a bugaboo, especially being from Quebec. Um, my wife had, had a great input into writing that one because she said, you got to write about this. And I said, okay, I'll write about that. And I usually bounce them off her because she's a great sounding board. Plus she's a, uh, if I tend to rant too much, she stops me. But, that, but it is a sort of a rant. So you have a mild version of a, like a Rick Mercer rant where you're walking around the room and talking about your subject and you put pen to paper. Uh, and uh, that's the way I approach it, you know, that uh, something that's, that's bothersome that's going to affect healthcare, like the, I think like the debate over private versus public or, Trudeau or the federal government transfer payments or medical education. I think my next one will be about the, uh, the next uh, lost generation of medical students, especially at McGill, where no one gets to do an elective anymore. I don't know how people are gonna choose a specialty if you can't do an elective because of COVID. I mean, this is not the only time that they're gonna deal with a pandemic in their life and they should, get, they should be able to deal with that and do electives, but our medical schools decided not to apparently. So that's the kind of thinking that goes for me behind it. Something that is a little controversial, a little current and that uh, that would be better out, out there now rather than uh, waiting six months for another publication. Um, the other thing I wanted to uh, talk to you about is sort of your thoughts about EBM. You wrote this great uh, article about evidence-based medicine and, and you're, you have this uh, paper that's called Evidence-Based Medicine Boom or Bust in Orthopedics Trauma, which was published in uh, JSBS. How do you think about, especially now in your role as editor-in-chief, how do you think about EBM and, and the challenges of applying that to surgery? And, and I'm specifically thinking about the challenges of doing RCTs in surgery. 
Yeah, it's a uh, it's a big deal. I mean, I'm a, I'm a member, I guess, card-carrying member of the Canadian Orthopedic Trauma Society. So we were one of the first big world groups to push EVM uh, in orthopedics. We were kind of ahead of the curve. One of my mentors, Mark Swinkowski, was one of the, was uh, instrumental in uh, doing a functional outcome score for musculoskeletal problems which no one had ever done before. And we sort of continued that on with a group of uh, like-minded researchers across Canada, uh, led by Ross Layton out of Nova Scotia, actually for the last uh, 25 years. But we specialize in doing large clinical trials, uh, cross-country borders, and about simple questions that we can answer in orthopedics. Uh, nothing complicated, that's the best way to get a result, right? So we're very happy with, what, with our contribution to literature. We've been recognized in multiple places as being, you know, what's called great researchers. It's just a great pe- a group of people who are willing to collaborate. That's what makes great researchers. But as that went on, it became more and more obvious that people don't really care if you uh, solve a problem, if that's not what they were trained to do. So I, used, I just spoke at the University of Washington I, I, before the COVID, but I used the example that we cured avascular necrosis of the hip eight years ago. Nobody cares because total hip arthroplasty is so easy to do and so well paid that they don't want to do anything else. So that's the kind of thing that goes on in all surgery, I think. You, you sort of get a toolkit that it's, it's really hard to make you change your toolkit. So if evidence-based medicine is good, and I think it's good, but it doesn't make any societal change, what, why are we paying so much money? It's a huge cost to do randomized controlled trials. Uh, Mo Banderi ran one that's very famous about open fractures with uh, thousands of patients, eight countries, uh, dozens and dozens of centers, and cost millions of dollars to do them. It was great New England Journal publication for everyone involved, uh, multiple other publications uh, and sub-studies. But if it doesn't change the way we're going to do medicine, why are we spending money on those trials? So our argument with this kind of symposium that we ran was that we need to follow up on these trials. And if we're not changing the way patients are cared for, then why are we doing it? And I think I, I think is a little bit tongue-in-cheek that I, I do believe in evidence-based medicine, but I also believe in follow-up. You know, you can't do something and not follow up and figure out what the outcome is. And we haven't done that well in orthopedics, and I assume we haven't done that very well in other specialties. I haven't seen those papers come across my desk. So the question then becomes, you know, should you just be doing cohort studies rather than randomized control trials? Because they are a lot cheaper. And I think that it's a combination of both. I, we just, uh, we're looking at a problem called acute compartment syndrome. So we got access to huge databases of biostatistician and we looked up the results and we were finding weird results, even with huge cohorts. And we went back and looked at the randomized controlled trials, and, which showed that tibia fractures had a 10% incidence of this complication. But the, but the, the cohort study was showing a 3% incidence and we couldn't reconciliate that. But it just comes down to the fact that data is not collected correctly and that people don't like the code for a car- compartment syndrome because it's a medical legal risk. And so now you're stuck. You should have had a net better answer with the cohort study, but we know it's not right. So I think a combination of the two is probably what we're going to be at the future. You know, we're going to have to identify problems with cohort studies or identify solutions 
And if we haven't got a definitive answer, we can at least verify it with other controlled trials, but make sure we pick our controlled trials to be trials that will change people's practice. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, that was fantastic. And I think it brings up a lot of the, the issues around uh, RCTs and surgery. And, and I think it's something that I personally have thought a lot about. Um, but do, do you think that the issue with RCTs is just that the, um, that A, that they're in a select population where uh, the, the conditions are very tightly controlled and so the application to, you know, your average patient that walks in the door doesn't apply? Or is it more that, you know, people just won't apply the findings of an RCT until they've sort of trained to do it. You know, I mean, an example in general surgery is, you know, there's the stitch trial that showed that five millimeter by five millimeter bites for closing fascia uh, was better, but I have yet to see anyone close their fascia like that. And, you know, it just, it's just sort of this, one of those things where, you know, I've never done it that way. Uh, you know, the few people who tried to do that said, Oh, well, I had someone dehiss. And so then therefore, you know, even though that's the whole point of randomized controlled trials or, or, or studies is to get away from anecdotes. But, but what's your sense? Is it, is it sort of A or B? No, I think it's, it's a perfect example. I think it's both. That's a bad answer, but uh, my daughter's a lawyer, so I can, I can go that way. The, uh, the, I think that part of the problem is uh, people's interpretation of trials. So you got two ways to go. You can either design a trial for the typical surgeon. So a lot of the British trials in orthopedics are designed that way. They'll have a, they had a proximal humerus fracture study, which basically had a couple hundred patients in it with 66 uh, uh, surgeons, and they averaged about two two uh, surgeries per pay, per uh, surgeon. So the argument against that trial was, well, those guys aren't expert. Of course, it didn't turn out right. You know. That, that can't be, you can't publish that. Well, they got published in JAMA because it was extremely well-designed trial, except that it probably didn't have any implications for our practice because you're going to look at that and go, well, community surgeons were doing these tough fractures. Of course, they, they're, you know, of course it didn't turn out as well. Well, at, in the Canadian side, we, we really limit our trials to our 53 PIs, which are all trauma fellowship trained surgeons. And so we realized that um, if we did complicated answers, we might get answers. We might have significant results, but they wouldn't be significant to the community. So we try to do simple tests like do you use soap or no soap when you wash out an open fracture? Do you leave the ulnar nerve where it is or transpose it when you do a distal humerus fracture? Those are applicable to every surgeon in our readership. So I think you have to be careful about the way you design your trials. And a lot of the stuff in the literature, people, like I said, people look at and go, well, that doesn't apply to me for X, Y, and Z. You've got to eliminate the X, Y, and Z when you design your trials. And I think we've done a good job of that. But even, even at that, we still have trouble uh, getting a knowledge translation to the community. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt that's a challenge for every specialty and every subspecialty, uh, I think, everywhere. But you're exactly right. I mean, you guys have really led the way, I would argue, uh, maybe in combination with the Canadian Critical Care Trials Collaborative yeah. uh, as the two sentinel groups uh, in this country for, for a long time. So I think, you know, we're, we've just uh, begun, 
sort of an acute care surgery group that's national and, and it's called the Canucks group, which obviously is an acronym, but that's really what we're trying to emulate is, is steal from you guys and, 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 uh, and, and borrow and beg. So hopefully, hopefully we'll get there because you've done such great work. You know, what, one of the other interesting things to talk about in RCTs, and I, I certainly have heard you talk about it and Mo talk about it and I've talked about it, is the, the idea of, of data fr- fragility within a typical surgical trial. You know, the, the usual thing, you, you take two or three, you know, events or, or people in your numerator and flip them over to the other, uh, the other ratio and all of a sudden your conclusions are very different. How do you evaluate that issue when you're reviewing a paper? And then how do you uh, consider it or contemplate it when you're designing the trial? Yeah, I think it's uh, important in designing trials. And I, like, I gave this talk at the American Academy last year. And like, it's like, a, it's, and I talked about this. And it's, you get like a 50-50 response. You know, all the statisticians are rolling over on the table, under the table, yeah. yelling at me and things. And then uh, those clinicians are sort of, oh, yeah, that makes sense. So some of my bugaboos are like intent to treat. So in an epidemiologically well-designed study, if you randomize two arms, there's an intent to treat. If you go in one arm, you're there. Now, that's great in a medical trial, like for hypertension, where you're also changing everything else around that patient and helping them, even if they're not, if they decide to get out of that arm, right? But if you go into a surgical arm and you either have surgery or no surgery, there's no place for intent to treat yeah. in design of a trial. And we still do that. I mean, I, I use the clavicles paper as a great example. And the clavicle trial was what really made us famous in that we had a, a no fixation versus fixation for clavicle fractures. Everybody in the world said there's no way you should ever fix those things. Even the surgeons doing it thought we were crazy to do the trial. And at the end of the trial, it turned out, no, you should fix them. And it's really changed the way people practice at least in the centers that did the study. The problem with that study was we had an intent to treat. So the two non-unions uh, in the surgical side were actually people that went to surgery and said, oh, no, I don't want surgery, and then got a non-union, and then were treated with surgery and healed uneventfully. But they're still treated as non, uh, like they're in the other arm, right? They're treated as complications for the surgical side. Now, uh, you'd mentioned fragility. If this was a typical ortho paper, or a clinical trial, three patients in one arm rather than the other arm would swing the whole decision tree, right? So that, there was a real danger with that, tri- that trial that it would have went the other way and it would have been like non-ops way to go. You know, still, everyone would say, of course it is, but it really wasn't. So we have to design our trials a little better and we have to design, you know, how we enroll patients. There's, it's really hard to do a uh, two-arm study where one's non-op and one's op. There's no place for everyone knows who had the operation. The patient knows, the surgeon knows, the physiotherapist knows. So I think it requires a, a rethinking of how we uh, design those trials. And I think that would help a lot. That's, that's so well said. Um, you know, Ed, uh, we, as Amir said, we recognize you're super busy and, and really want to thank you for being on again. I, I want to finish, though, with a, with a selfish uh, question because I, I marvel at – um, what many of your trainees have told me about you in terms of your well-roundedness and particularly your, your dedicated family life. Um, I'm curious, you know, other than the, the usual barn fire maybe that most of us live in, how, how do you manage the editorship, the clinical surgery, the innovation, uh, private work that you do, and then, of course, the surgeon scientist side of things with 
your family and the rest of your interests in life. What's the, what's the trick to that? I think we could all learn from you. Well, you know, I'm getting emotional now. I talk about my family, but I can give you a short answer, a long answer. My, the short answer is my wife's. And she goes, yeah, it's because you can't sleep. And so, yeah, like most nights I sleep three or four hours. And that's the way I've been all my life. But the, the real answer is, uh, is time management. And it's easy to say, but I've always, you know, obviously your patients are the priority, like taking care of life and limb decisions. I'm a trauma surgeon. But I've, I don't schedule my day like that. I schedule my day where my family is the most important thing. So at the beginning of the week and during the day, my wife continually reminds me of what I have to do for the family. <laughs> and I've always been involved with coaching them uh, in hockey. My kids all played uh, inner city hockey. My girls played AAA hockey. My son is now going to play university rugby. And I've always tried to make every one of the games or been the doctor at their teams. And that's my priority. But then they all understand that if, there's some emergency happens in the hospital. I'm going to go do that. And then all the rest of the stuff gets scheduled in 10 minute blocks during the week. It's just really time management. It, it's, there's no secret. It, everyone's busy. Absolutely. Everyone's busy. You've been listening to cold steel, the official podcast of the Canadian journal of surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.